Welcome back to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. You know those books that from the first sentence make you suck in your breath and hold it, and then 300 pages later you realize you're still holding it? That's the experience I had with Melissa Chadburn's debut novel, A Tiny Upward Shove. It's a bit, kind of only a bit, like one of those those old grimmest of grim fairy tales written in contemporary times for adults, told from an unconventional point of view, and it is absolutely riveting. Melissa joins me today to talk about it and the years it took her to write it and all the decisions that she had to make along the way. And balancing this with her journalism career and her PhD program and finding an agent and all that businessy stuff, we'll talk about all of that. Because yes, Melissa is also a journalist. She writes for the LA Times, the New York Times, the New York Review of Books Daily and other publications. She's an activist and labor organizer. And yes, she's also at work on a PhD at USC, writing a creative dissertation about LA County's foster care system. All of this plays a role in this novel, so I hope we chat about it all. Before I bring her on, as always, a very fast reminder that we are on Patreon. You can follow us there at www.patreon.com slash writers on writing. If you sign up to be a patron, we will give you writing tips and tricks and prompts once a week. It's a great way to stay in touch with us and to have us stay back in touch with you. Again, www.patreon.com slash writers on writing. A quick warning before we begin, I'm pretty confident elements of our conversation will be graphic with discussions of both sex and violence and the use of profanity. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Melissa, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So maybe before we get to the book, you mentioned in your bio that your mom taught you how to sharpen a pencil with a knife and you've been doing that since. So I was just wondering if we could kind of start there with growing up and who gave you this love of language and this gift of storytelling. You know, I'm wondering, were you, you were born a writer or it came from somewhere else? What a sweet question. And also that is literal. I think that throws people off in my bio, (laughs) but we, I did actually sharpen my pencils with, you know, steak knives, but I think I learned storytelling from the women in my family. My mom's side is Filipino. She was born in the Philippines. And so, you know, there was a lot of gossip and powerful information to be heard and shared in the kitchen at uh, gatherings um, where the women would sit around and play mahjong and, and just gossip. And so I always had a fervor for storytelling. I learned how to speak and read at a really young age. And I think I spent a lot of time with my mom as a single, when, as, when she was a single mother at her job, and I would take those like reams of paper. She was often like a, worked in as a support staff. So as a secretary or clerical work, and I would take those reams of paper that were like green and white striped with the holes along the side <laughs> yes, yeah. to the machines. And I would just take a bunch of it and write what is now called fan fiction, you know, just really elaborate narratives about based off of Ramona Quimby books, I think, but they were very elaborate narratives about me being best friends with Alyssa Milano or something like that. <laughs> but I would even like write my own little 
copyright symbol. And um, so I think I've always been a storyteller. I'm always jealous of people who grow up in sort of the, the dual culture where you get all of those cultural references from another place and all of their history of storytelling and all of their you know, unique uses of language and metaphor and, and symbolism and idioms and all of those great things. I'm like, man, you've like doubled your capacity <laughs> for writing. For I was super good at being a people pleaser and trying to read the temperature in the room too. So I think that I just, you know, um, always was fashioning my own narratives or trying to fashion narratives on how I can get my needs met. You know, I, later on, I did enter foster care and it was a similar situation. You know, it was just me and a bunch of cholas playing gin rummy all day and listening to like oldies. And Mm -hmm. um, there's still a a lot of stories and action happened in in that same respect. It was like another generation of kids in LA County that were reenacting this thing that I had witnessed across kitchens in in holidays. Right. I mean, it's almost like a, a dual family structure that you came up in, it sounds like. Maybe we can get into more of that in a little bit. So before I have you introduce the book, I I was saying to you, I rarely, if ever, do this, but I thought we'd start with a reading because it's so the beginning of this book so beautifully sets the stage and sets up the book and establishes a really unique voice and does all these other really wonderful things for the novel. And so I thought it would lead naturally to both introducing the book and to setting up a lot of the questions that I have. So what if we do that first? If we start with you reading sort of those first couple of pages, which will require no setup because it's at the, the very beginning. Sure, I'd love to. Okay. Tinikling, double Dutch, Filipinx style. Don't believe anyone who tells you that death comes quick and painless. That's bullshit. Dying hurts like fuck all everything. You can feel all the pains, the hurts, the joys, the cries of all the world. There's no numbing dope, no dick wows, no kitty kitty yum yum, just a floodlight on all the world's needs. Death is a dump. You see it all, kids, parents, teachers, the rats under the street that run through the sewers, suck, suck, squeak, squeak, the pigeons that shit everywhere, the throwaways nobody else wants, the thugs, the queers, the hoes, the junkies, the brats, the fuck-ups, the killers. Let me get this straight. The way I'm telling you any of this, I'm Aswang. And I know about the slow agonies of death because this body belonged to one of the throwaways, an 18-year-old girl named Marina who wound up murdered on a pig farm in a place called Port Coquitlam. Before I finished the tinnicling, before I jumped into her body, before Marina found Willie in the corner of Maine and Hastings, before the track marks on the insides of her knees and elbows, she lived a cleaner life. Before the late night diner trips where she saw before falling into sleep her mother's face, a face took up with large dark eyes reflecting the suspicion of others. She still hoped to be a pure spirit. Marina used to be 12. She used to live in a group home named for trees, five in a cottage out in the valley. She had the bottom bunk and Alex on top, too close to the popcorn ceiling plastered with CK1 ads torn out of fashion magazines. She used to look into people's dining rooms as she walked down the street. She put herself at one of those tables with roasted chicken and vegetables picked from a garden, not mashed potatoes poured flaky out of a box like her ma used to make, not carnation powdered milk mixed with water, though she did like to pick out the congealed lumps and feel them separate like pudding on her tongue. She used to do graffiti on government-issued desks waiting for her name to be called. Marina used to stand around with teenage boys on the street corner waiting for the light to change. She used to hitch rides through the valley and give strange men hand jobs for 20 bucks. 
Marina used to worry about gonorrhea and feel like she was the worst piece of living fuck shit. And before all that, Marina used to be five. She used to lie on her tummy, a thumb plunked in her mouth, index finger curled around her nose. And sometimes Mucho would come in and rub her back and tell her a story of a long, long time before. Marina used to leave a small music box outside in the rain, hoping to attract berries. She used to practice kissing girls on the back of her hand or her own shoulder just to see what her skin tasted like. She used to get all squirmy and thrilled watching whodunits with her ma. She used to long for the ordinary. She used to live with Jess Ma, and they might have been poor, but they had a good time. Their homemade games were sometimes Reno running out to the garage behind the apartment building and picking up the water hose. She'd learn how to spray the water so it swooshed up toward the sky and back down like her own private waterfall. Then she ran around the apartment shouting, Bomb, bay, bee, bo, boo, a pillowcase, her white wings tied around her neck, her childlike chatter so candid and fresh. And right then, she figured she was the luckiest girl alive. I love that opening so much for so many reasons, but you know, it always strikes me that we've been told a book teaches you how to read it from the beginning. And mm -hmm. this really feels like that, you know, it really feels like we know what we're in for and it does so many things to set up the rest of the book. Before we get into too much of that, maybe I'll just have you introduce it a little bit further. So we understand the point of view, you know, who's who's the narrator and and a little bit more about this story and then then we can launch off from there. But yeah, maybe take us a little bit further into the book so we know we know who we're dealing with here. Yeah, so we have two strands. We have the fictive present, which is narrated by the Aswang who is a figure in Filipino folklore. Now, depending on what province you're from or what region you're from, she could be described differently. She could be shapeshifter. She half pig, half woman, half wolf, half woman. She could be a, God forbid, a spinster, you know, an old woman who lives alone. Um, she, um, she's often uh, described as uh, like a shapeshifter where she appears as maybe perhaps an old woman who lives alone during the day, but then at night she turns into um, this being that has a long thin proboscis, which is like the tubing at the end of a butterflies that butterflies have, you know, on their mm -hmm. face. And um, she flies onto rooftops and is rumored to suck babies up through her proboscis. So I think it was often a warning growing up. Like if you misbehave, like you better be good or the Oswam will get you. But she's also sort of a production of the colonial imagination in that, you know, beware of these badass feminist Filipino women who have all this power. So I, I think that she's deeply misunderstood. And so this is her take back. But so that, that's one strand is a narrative. It starts with a death, like often traditional, say, true crime or thrillers begin with a death. In this set, set I, I try to consider this like a sort of a trans-Pacific intersectional feminist retelling <laughs> of uh, a true crime. So it does begin with a body, but that body, it also begins with a birth, which is this Aswang who, and then the other strand is told in the, like, how did we get here? So there's like the fictive present. This is what's going on. And the Aswang has to avenge this death. And then the other strand is, is how the telling of Marina's life from where she, from the begin the end, and working its way backwards. And using this real life serial killer as a vehicle mm -hmm. for that death. Yeah, so the, the Aswang is wonderful because it accomplishes so many 
things. It allows us, it feels like to me, to take some of the sex and violence that comes in the novel and put it kind of, as I mentioned at the beginning, in this a slightly fairy tale setting, right? And and you'd made the observation, I think in another interview that I heard, that we will tolerate things in a fairy tale that we won't tolerate generally, you know, that whatever happens in a fairy tale is fair game. And it got me thinking, like, I'm not sure why that is. And maybe you, I'm sure you have way more insights about that, but it accomplishes that. And it also allows us to sort of float through time to all of these different generations and, you know, kind of get this omniscient point of view into these other other generations of the family. So was the Aswang there all the way? Was Was that an original conception of this novel there from the very beginning? Yes, the, those first pages, that was always the opening. And those first pages were my most solid pages. So I'm glad that they, they worked. But I will say that the mechanics of it was what probably took so damn long. You know, like like the fairy tale, except on its face that, you know, oh, the ox, you know, this is what she can, she can engage other people's memories and thoughts because she's Oswong, that's why. But, you know, I need to actually do do some world building and unpacking on how that worked and that that took a quite a while for me yeah i was going to ask you about that because well you know once you enter sort of the magical realism realm you do have to do that you have to set up all of the rules of how the world works and you don't want to be didactic about that and you know that was another thing that you accomplished so well i want to go back to these pages being there from the very beginning because that that's kind of amazing to me because we learned so much about these pages later on in the novel. And so I had assumed that once the novel was done, you went back and wrote these pages. But but maybe these acted as sort of maybe a template for you to to unravel the novel. Is that how it worked? Yeah, I mean, I think that my project and my obsessions, they all come out in those first couple paragraphs. And prior to this book, I mean, the most successful essay I'd ever written, uh, I think, or the first essay that was sort of successful that I'd written that maybe anybody had read was an essay called The Throwaways. And it was supposed to be, on its surface, you think it's about me, you know, a young girl growing up in foster care and in poverty. And then you later learn it's really about taxes and how, what a radical tool they are for income and economic, uh, economic distribution. And so I think that that's always this, I, this, but this concept of people on the margins being deemed throwaway, or, you know, later on, I, as I learned in academia, I got these, this other language about grievability and Judith Butler's concept of, you know, uh, necropolitics of who should live and who should die or who we ought to grieve and what's the right amount of number. And as I said, I, as you mentioned in the introduction, I have been reporting on the child welfare system for quite some while, some time. And throughout this project, I was also reporting on the child welfare system and on particularly harrowing cases. And so those are ideas that I always try to trouble in my work. But it had a lot of specifics about her memories. Alex was in there, you know, a lot of a lot of things that came up. So that that's kind of wonderful. That's kind of uh, tell me how long this this book took in total. Oh, it's so depressing. I don't yeah. want to tell any aspiring writers to lose their mojo, or I do because it can happen. It'll happen. Yeah. It'll happen. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, I wrote. It took probably my life to write this book, but then also. I think what's 
interesting or significant about this particular book as opposed to others is that actually from contract to publication that was a that was like a, at least a seven year process so it was under contract for seven years before it even got published and before that you would say another five maybe yeah I would say maybe another five I mean I'd gone to an MFA program and you know maybe some version of this was my dissertation there but I think it came out to be a different animal than it started for sure yeah that's that's the one thing that I wanted to talk about because I it's so funny that you say that that's discouraging I think it's I think it's it's in part encouraging to me one because you know magnificent work takes the time it takes and two it's kind of hopeful to me that you know it's as you say it it'll happen and it does happen and and it probably came out much better for mm. the for the time it took right oh um, for sure i mean i think i keep on telling myself like nothing nothing big or good has ever happened for me on my timeline like that has been true <laughs> all the way, you know, and I do think it was the right setting and the right. I mean, one of the things that changed was that my editor changed publishing houses and I went with her. But I feel like the uh, my publisher now FSG is much more aligned with, you know, the aesthetic of my work than where I had initially signed, perhaps, you know, so I just think like all the right things happened at all the right time. I mean, I even met my editor on a plane going to a writer's conference and she was seated beside me. And so, uh, you know, it's just like all this kismet sort of stuff occurred around my publication that I think lets me know that, that it's the right situation. It's just, you know, in my mind, I thought perhaps I would be younger well, and FSG is, I should mention that that's your publisher, that there's such a good house for this novel. I mean, it feels like that is exactly the right home for, for, a, for a book like this. And then, so let's talk a little bit about what it, what it looked like way back in the day and how it, how it kept shifting. So those first pages were there. It mm -hmm. also sounded like there's a, there's a chapter that, uh, you know, is the same title chapter as the book. Mm -hmm. And that sounded like that was always there. From, yeah. Um, okay. So. Yeah. So what did you have then and what did you lose and how did you kind of know you had to, you had to lose it? I had, well, uh, as my editor told me, I was mortified when I first heard this and now I get to have like a, a sense of humor about it, but she was like, you know, you're like a bodybuilder with all the muscles, but no skeleton. And like, <laughs> <laughs> So I, like that. so I didn't have structure and that's always been my Achilles heel. And it's so funny because it is so structured. And like initially I would argue there was a version. I don't think the version that my publisher bought, there was a version without Willie Picton. And so basically it was just auto fiction, although there was an Oswang, but, the, but it was not as plotty as it is now. And, um, and I did, you know, I struggled a lot with, plot and the ticking time bomb and and I you know I wanted to like push against it but then I also was fascinated by Willie Picton and so I was like well when I finish this project I will write 
fictive retelling of this Willie Picton guy. <laughs> um, but I just smacked a serial killer on it. And that's how I got to my plot. But yeah, I, I think structure was the most thing that it was missing. I mean, there was a version of this that was mostly vignettes. And I, I think if you read my essays, and this text too reads similar, there was, a, there's a lot of white space and a lot of vignettes and like a lot of in is normally how I would write an essay. So to accomplish a similar thing in a book link project, I think that that's like sort of my go-to is to do that braiding where there's like a contemporary narrative. And then there's like some, it's usually external versus internal as the braid or some sort of contemporary thread and some sort of reflective thread. And I think that when I realize, you know, I want, I realize like that's my jam. I might as well try to do that with this text. Am I right that the Willie Picton idea came out of a Tin House writer's workshop? You are. Idea? <laughs> you are. It's sort of like a silly thing to share, but I... We're big fans um, of Tin House here, so we love these stories. Yeah. Go oh, ahead. good. Emma, who is now an editor at um, Poets and Writers, she was like sitting in front of me at Tin House, and I think she she worked for my lovely, more attractive literary family at Tin House and she she was sitting in front of me and she had the letters WP written on her ankle and I thought oh is that is that Willie Picton and she was like no (laughs) (laughs) she she was like it stands for writing prompt because I was like in it she was in an earlier workshop and somebody mentioned a writing prompt and so she wrote it on her ankle as a reminder and I said because you know I thought when I'm done with this book I'm going to write this I can't wait to do this, you know, writing about Willie Picton. And then I went back to my room that night and I just rewrote the whole manuscript. And I did, like I said, put a serial killer on it. And that, cause I was missing that sort of ticking time bomb. I was missing plot. And so, and that's when it kind of came alive. So I don't know if it was, you know, you know when you go to these residencies, it's like, an alternate universe where everybody cares about what you care about and you're just thinking about writing and talking about writing for like you know four or five days straight and so it was the right space and time all these kismet things it's crazy that is funny and just funny that you thought she had would have written willie picton i know (laughs) (laughs) well and i think it was at that same conference at that same time dana spiota said there is a time in your writing where it does seem like everything is about what you're writing. You know, you turn on the radio and that song is playing and it's your care. So I think that that was a little bit of that was happening probably too. Where, but that sign that I did automatically think of Willie Picton let me know like, oh, you know what? Like you need to write about this now. <laughs> like you're right. just thinking about and seeing Willie Picton everywhere. Well, and it makes sense that he would give the novel such a nice sense of structure. And as you say, that ticking time bomb, I think that's a lot of, especially in literary fiction and for new writers, that is the Achilles heel for a lot of writers is how the hell do I structure all of this material? Uh, You know, I've known writers who write in fragments and they've just got, you know, Mm -hmm. 800 pages of stacks and they're like, I don't, I don't even know what to do with this now, you know, so. Right. Yeah, I did. I do often write in fragments too. Like I said, with my essays, it's, there's a lot of white space and a lot of vignettes. And so I will say my advisor was Maggie Nelson. And she mentioned that all of her books have said kind of a ghost text to it. And she might take a text and 
actually used that as scaffolding for her text. And so I did do that. I did take apart a lot of books that had a structure that was something that I can look at or use as a blueprint for my text. Like I looked at In Cold Blood and I looked at I looked at a bunch of books and, and really like kind of looked under the hood and saw how it was working and um, outlined them and deconstructed them. And, and um, because like I, that's just such a challenging aspect. And it's funny because it is now so structurally sound. I'm glad that I was able to pull it off. <laughs> yeah. Are you aware of a woman, Jane Allison? Spiral. Mm -hmm. Spiral. Meander. Meander. <laughs> <laughs> Three words that I can't. Yeah. Maybe. Oh, me, here. It's right next to me. Oh, you have it. See? It's yeah. Meander, spiral, and explode. There you go. Yeah. I was I love thinking. It. Isn't it great? Yes. Yeah. And I was just talking about that with, with another writer recently, and we were just talking about the unconventional ways that you can structure a novel. And this, as you say, this is pretty structured, but I was still trying after I finished it to kind of picture it in my head as, you know, as she would do of one of these, you know, either shape. these shape. Yeah. The shape of the novel. And I wondered, well, now that you have the book, I'm sure you did do some thinking about that. I was wondering if, you well, yeah, no, I wish I had it then. Also, maybe not because like, maybe that would have, I would have gone on this whole crippling, like, I need to <laughs> emulate these different shapes or something. But have you read, Ursula Le Guin has an incredible craft essay called The Carrier Bag of Fiction. No. Oh, I'll add that. Yeah. If you Google it as a PDF, you can access it. And it's it's really just like um, a pushing back away and against the um, traditional hero's journey narrative arc. Like that's sort of a masculinist imposition but it's it's in a similar vein in that there's lots of different shapes and they're often round in terms of the carrier bag of fiction could be the womb or you know anything that sort of um, moves along a story but it doesn't have to necessarily just go up and down so I thought that was really yeah. interesting yeah I love that because you had talked about deciding on the novel as sort of you know the the right container for what mm -hmm. you were trying to convey because obviously a lot of your work in nonfiction is dealing with many of these issues as well but you can do so much more in fiction than you can or you know different types of things obviously in fiction than you can in nonfiction. so I think yeah those are two different discussions but of finding the right genre mm -hmm. to convey the information and then once you have that correct container finding the right shape for it and I think I don't know that writers think about genre, but I don't know if they think about the the shape that novels can take mm -hmm. as much as they perhaps should. Or, you know, we're so locked into this, as you say, sort of masculine normative way of storytelling that that we don't consider things outside of that structure. And it can you can do it at your peril, certainly. <laughs> I think it can go off the rails. But yeah, I think that's that's really interesting. Well, let's talk a little bit about Willie Picton and choosing him he's he's such a very specific choice and once you made that choice I assume there was a fair amount of research and then living inside his head in terms of characters that were the the hardest to render would you say he was one of them or would you say he came pretty easily because he was based in reality oh no yeah he came pretty easily he's so much fun to write I mean I think of fiction as a way to take all of my, you know, I consider my character defects just my assets dialed all the way up, you know, and I think that fiction allows us to do that. We can dial up 
all the character defects even, which is a safe place to play with all that. And I and I have spent a long time as a journalist and otherwise developing a witnessing practice. And I think that, you know, it's a kind of a nice hobby of mine to <laughs> jump into other people's minds and hearts and a good empathy building mechanism. One of the things that struck me, and this comes from those first pages as well, that you you kind of almost developed your own language. You know, you have the, there's no numbing, no dope, no dick wows, no kitty kitty yum yum. You have these great phrases that we've never come across before, but we know exactly what they mean, or, you know, we kind of feel what they mean. And it allows you a way to talk about some of the later serious violence in the book, and we can get into how you render those scenes so well, in a way that feels safer, more play. I mean, the language is playful and therefore feels a little bit more accessible. And the voice, you know, is so lyrical and lovely that I think it gives us a little gateway to be able to tolerate some of the the more difficult scenes. And I wonder if you if you agree with that or if you if oh, that's good. just kind of your voice. I hope so. I mean, I it is my voice in the sense that I'm really I am very much into mouthfeel. If you find a sheet of my writing on the street, you know, you will know it's mine often. And I think um and I do often like to read my work aloud and I just think those words are so fun to say, like dick wows and kitty kitty yum yum. Like that's fun to say. But I also think it is working on the same level as what you mentioned earlier in terms of fairy tales offer enchantment. And, you know, people who study fairy tales and folklorists, um, Max Luthi was uh, is one person who breaks down all the elements of a fairy tale and and enchantment, what enchantment allows you to do is it sort of dulls that sense-making apparatus in your mind. So you just accept what's happening. You're not wondering why, you know, little Red Riding Hood's grandmother turned into a wolf. You just believe it because that's the way in which it's written with that language too, of like once upon a time. Once you hear once upon a time, you're like, all right, I'm just going to buckle in and be in the story. And so hopefully my language is adding whimsy, I guess, in a similar way that you can engage with these narratives. Because I do have this problem, which is that there's these things I care about so much, like, uh, how do I get folks to listen to them? It's like, you invite me to a party, will I ever get invited back? All I want to do is talk about capitalism and dead babies, you know? So like, how do I, (laughs) how do I get people to engage with these narratives? Because if not, then um, we're not hearing about these like larger systemic breakdowns. We're only stuck with the narrative that's being told right now about the American family. So hopefully, you know, some fun words will help us along the way. (laughs) And the fiction here does, again, what an, what an essay or piece of journalism couldn't do, which is, give. I mean, of course, you can you can empathize with, with the people in an essay, but this takes you so deeply into their lives that, you know, that you're living and breathing their experiences as opposed to sort of, you know, at airplane distance, hovering over their experiences. And yet it is not in any way didactic or preachy or all the things that, you know, fiction absolutely cannot be. 
And I was wondering going into this with, you know, sort of an agenda, but maybe a point of view about things, if you ever had to kind of sweep some of that instinct for journalistic telling or didacticism or whatever that is a way to stay in story. No, I would actually say quite the contrary, which is that I I can I'd probably consider myself a recovering journalist. I mean, I will still turn to journalism sometimes if if my intention is impact and I need to write like, you know, a 1200 word op-ed about a particular issue, but I I'm much more interested in like the whole story and all the points of view. And so I think that, uh, and I want to approach it with all the tools in my toolbox, which include fabulism and magic and all these sorts of things. So th- this actually broadened my capacity to tell a story rather than restricted it. And I also, and yeah, I don't really, I do have an agenda. I always have an agenda. I'm a worker lover. I love the shit out of workers. You know, I'm a child lover. I care about people and families and I'm not going to even pretend that objectivism is something that um, can be actually really acquired. (laughs) So, you know, I think that, yeah, I did have an agenda. And, um, but part of that is, again, entertaining people and getting them to read a narrative, if perhaps they have an opposing opinion or thought. We will be back with more from Melissa Chadburn and A Tiny Upward Shove in just a moment. You're listening to Writers on Writing. Another quick reminder to check out our Patreon page if you're liking the show and have learned any tips or tricks along the way that may have inched you closer to publication. Visit us at www.patreon.com slash writers on writing. By becoming a backer for a few bucks a month, we will send you weekly writing tips and tricks. Again, patreon.com slash writers on writing. Let's get back to it with Melissa Chadburn and a tiny upward shove. One thing that's so hard for writers, and I don't get the sense it's hard for you, so I'm hoping you give us some insight. A is writing sex and B is writing violence. You know, those things are tricky for writers. Either they're too, like, I don't know. Well, on sex, they're too mechanical or in violence, they're too emotive and they'll tell us, you know, wait, you know, there's too many tears or something. Right. And um, yes, any, if you can give us a a small MFA on those two topics. Well, the best advice I ever got was actually from my, a writing instructor who I had at Tin House and who stayed in touch with me over the years, but Steve Allman. And he just said, slow down where it hurts. Like Mm -hmm. that was the best advice I'd ever gotten when it came to writing is like, slow down where it hurts. And I mean, I can tell you a really sad story, (laughs) which is that uh, I survived two brothers and one died of a heroin overdose and one died of HIV. And the brother who died of a heroin overdose's last words were likely something like, fuck it. And my brother who died of HIV-related death, his last words were, I'm not ready yet. And I spent such, so much of my life just swinging on the pendulum between those two, you know, fuck it, I'm not ready yet, fuck it, I'm not ready yet. And, and it wasn't until later that I learned that part of my job was to just, uh, being a mature 
adult, you know, is sort of an emotionally mature adult, I guess, is to be in the discomfort of the center of those two poles. And the great thing about fiction is that you can write your characters like all the way there to I'm not ready yet and then slow down and like slow all the way down. But then we also get the benefit of finding out like, what if, like, what if they made it past that? What would that look like? And we get to write that out. Like what, what it looks like on the other side of I'm not ready yet, having survived, I'm not ready yet. Or having not survived, I'm not ready yet. You still get to write out what's on the other side of that. And I just think that that's one of the greatest gifts of fiction. And yet not being emotive about it. I mean, so many, what struck me about all of these scenes is they were so you get into such granular detail of what the, the women are noticing or they're mm-hmm. counting or they're you know whatever they're doing but they're not mm-hmm. grief stricken or given you know we're not we're not given a description of their emotions we're given a description of the the objects around them and you know I thought that was kind of a nice lesson to keep yeah. us in this in the scene and almost out of their head so that we're in our own head imagining what they're going through. Yeah, a writer I really admire, a writing teacher whom I really admire, and a scholar, I would say even, is Linda Berry. And um, she's a cartoonist, and she has a course that she teaches at Madison, Wisconsin, I think. And um, and she, she has her students, and this is a practice that I've always had my students do, which is to make a list every day of, you know, I think it was... For her, I think it was like seven or eight, but I, I've since whittled it down to five. Five things you did, five things you saw, you draw one of those things, and then you write a sentence you overheard. But I, again, like I feel like witnessing and the art of witnessing is one of our biggest, a great gift to storytelling and to prose. And so I constantly just being aware and um, I do another writing exercise that, that Linda Berry has in her book. I think it's what what it is is the book, and it's based on a course she taught. But um, it, she has all these very specific questions that she prompts. You know, where are you? What do you see if you look above your head? What do you see if you look on the floor? What do you see if you look to your right? What do you see? You know, what time of day is it? What kind of light is there? And I so I do try to apply that to scenes because that's that's such a common note right in writing workshops is to unpack a scene or write it in dramatic writing and I had no idea what people were talking about (laughs) and um I've since been lucky enough to learn that they're talking about dialogue like just write out dialogue and then to to unpack something in dramatic scene is to really just slow down and get those details of the room and as if you're there. So, and that's helpful for nonfiction as well as fiction. Actually, it's something that I don't see people do in nonfiction as, as much as uh, young writers, as much as they do in fiction. So I Mm. think it's a good tool to employ. I'm really glad you used the word lists because I was kind of reading this at one point through the lens of lists because they are so wonderful in this book. You have so many great ones. And I was wondering if you use that, and it sounds like you do. I think it's a really wonderful way, A, when writers are stuck, to make a list to just see what you're right, what your characters are experiencing. But I was wondering if you use that as sort of a conscious technique in your work or if, you know, if these lists just emerged organically. 
Yeah, I, I mean, every writer has their thing that they really enjoy doing. And I would say like lists are my favorite. Like that's when I'm like, oh yeah, this is good. Like this is my jam. But um, I, and I also uh, admit that my punctuation, my grammar and punctuation is really horrible. And so I do a lot of run on sentences, but that's why I love a good list too, because like all, all, that editor gets to just like shut up and go away while I write my list. <laughs> Is there more you can say about sort of sex and violence scenes? Are there kind of any rules that you follow about making it accessible, tolerable? Like you don't want to lose your reader. And I, I imagine there are just some readers that can't tolerate it at all. But do you give consideration to that, to how to make it? Because writers are always told, go deeper, go deeper. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, there are some readers that are like, stop going so deep. No, it's too much. Well, I had written about sexual violence once before. It, it wasn't even in a, in a truly published form in the sense that the literary website, The Rumpus, had this subscription service where people can subscribe and they get letters from writers. And um, I wrote a, like an explicitly sexually violent scene in my letter. And I, and I asked people to share their secrets with me. And I shared secrets with them. And, and the website got a bunch of complaints wishing that for a content warning. And then Roxane Gay published this incredible essay against content warnings. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and so I really liked how you opened this conversation. I'm always like listening to how people approach that because it is a dark and heavy book. People would want to know that before engaging that. But, you know, the great thing about books is you can pick them up and you can put them down and you can make sure that you're like emotionally ready for it. In terms of like advice on scenes, you know, I mean, I don't necessarily for people. I, I wonder who often those content warnings are for. You know, it's just like when people talk about the difference between trauma porn and like trauma informed narratives, it's like the difference is audience, you know, and people in the margins have experienced these uh, the, the, this book was written as a love letter, you know, as a love letter to Lola's, first of all, my grandmother and, and to other children in foster care, particularly young girls in foster care. And so I just feel like, and then the reason why Willie Picton was so significant to me is that he was preying on women along the Lafayette Highway at the same time that about, uh, there are several other serial killers preying upon missing and murdered indigenous women at the same time in the same place and like nothing was being done about it so it spoke to the my my real issue of this concept of people in the margins being perceived as throwaways and so i think it would be really convenient if we didn't tell these narratives that in include inconsistent violence for people who make violence hmm. that said you know i will say like in terms of just like craft point of view my only real tip is that I do like a lot of work when I am going to write a scene. Like I will light a candle and like feel my feet on the floor. And I might even like say a prayer or something when I'm going to write a very difficult scene. And then I will do something to signify I'm done writing that scene, which is blow out that candle and feel my feet on the floor so that I don't take it with me into the rest of my day. But that's like like the only sort of practical thing I do. I, but I, I mean, obviously the best advice I can give when it comes to writing is reading. Yeah, yes. <laughs> right. I mean, I would love to 
and I'm sure there's one out there. I, tin, speaking of Tin House, I mean, they have a really great, I love their craft books, which are yes, just yes, publications yes. of their lectures. And I do think that a lot of their lectures they have available online in their archives. But I think there's a lot of great ones about how to write sex. I, I wouldn't think that I would be the person to <laughs> talk about writing sex. <laughs> I do. I do. Okay. <laughs> In but fact, I, I think they have a whole book on it. I think there's a separate book the Tin House puts out on writing sex. So. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. So I think that that's a good place to go, but they usually will just like, I mean, this is like such a my my wife calls me in academia not when I use some of these phrases but like doing a close reading of books that includes sex scenes I think would be beneficial to writing sex scenes yes you know you should all read a tiny upward shove and you can see how this is (laughs) (laughs) and I do joke like at the heart of it it's just like a really it's a romance you know (laughs) yeah it is yes I know we should we should not leave that part out of it. That's true. That's true. I mean, there really is a very tender love story. Super sweet queer love story. I will tell you something funny that I haven't shared on any of these interviews, which is there was a period of time. It's funny to talk to someone now about the book because I've like landed in my body, you know, because it published in April and then I went on tour and I was also working on my had my qualifying exams and my prospectus and all that stuff with school. So now I have a little bit of more access to my brain and my body. Like this morning, I spent all morning making congee, like a rice porridge, which is very different than what my life was like when I was on tour. But there was a period of time when I take it, I can say cuss words on this show. Yes. Okay. So there was a period of time when I was, when an agent approached me about pseudonymously, pseudonymously writing um, romance novels. And she was just like, it people are just making a killing but the only annoying part about it is that you have to like do all the social media stuff so I made up a name and I opened like a a Facebook account for her and she had to like post every day you know and like on Wednesday it would be like happy hump day and like have a picture of like this (laughs) guy and and it was super heteronormative but she would just like throw me these ideas like she would be like well anal's really in this year you know and so she's like happy (laughs) writing scenes um and then I but I I learned a couple of things from that experience one is that romance writers are like so supportive of each other they are so kind and supportive like because they sell these books for like a penny a piece. You have to write like 40 of them in a series or something to make any money, but they all buy each other's books. So they have, I just imagine all these people with like basements filled with, you know, romance (laughs) novels, but they're always so supportive and they do a lot of like virtual tours and stuff. And, but then I also learned that I am just too, invested in my own work to <laughs> just hand it over to like I was like oh I kind of like this piece for me like the name I made up was Anne Wellworth which is like my middle name and my first street or something and so I was like I like it for me it's a good name yeah Anne Wellworth <laughs> anyways I'm glad you said that about romance novels, because that's the one thing that I think literary fiction writers often hear from family and friends it's like why don't you just write a romance novel 
Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's good to hear that uh, you would have to write 40 of them. Yeah. 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 To, to make any money. I mean, we're not all writing. What is it? Gray? 50 shades of gray. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I love talking to writers after the book has been out for a while because it's given you a chance to like get a little distance from it. And it's given you a chance to get feedback from readers and, you know, all of that stuff. So when it first comes out, which is typically when we do talk to writers, it's a different conversation. And I feel like I don't know if your relationship to it has changed at all now that it's been out in the world and doesn't belong to you kind of anymore. It kind of belongs to the world now. Yeah, I mean, I do think the platonic ideal for the novel is when you first get it when it's been, it's laid out and everything. So it looks like a real book, you know, but it hasn't failed you yet. So it's like, it's like you've got to the finish line, you have a real book, you're holding it, but it's like not out in the world yet because you've spent the first half worrying about whether or not it'll ever get published. And then you spend the second half like worried about what everybody thinks about it, you know? Um, and I I will say, you know, I just wish I was more present at the time it had come out because it was a time when like all my dreams came true and I was not here for it. I mean, we were also having a global pandemic and uh, there were just so many things going on. I And I had just come out in this docuseries about this particular heroin case in LA County. And, and like I said, I was very active in trying to do my school work. And so uh, it is really nice to be able to talk to somebody after you've like landed in your body. I don't want to miss the opportunity to a, I get a lot of questions from writers about middles, middles of novels Mm. typically suck for the writer. They have a lot of momentum at the beginning. They know how novels are typically often they know how it's going to end, but the middles are really hard to sustain energy. Mm -hmm. And so I often read these novels with that kind of lens in mind. And this I mean, we got new characters in the middle of the book. Um, there was just a lot of energy that was sustained in the middle. And I was wondering if there was anything you could say about that. Yeah, I mean, that's another good argument for having that braided structure of like a fictive present. And then how did, and how did we get, and then the, then the past of like, how did we get here? Yeah. Um, just because then that allows you to, I mean, my biggest advice is just have all your narrators be an Oswong, you know, because yes. you can just jump around, but like, but that did keep the energy alive because it is fun to, I mean, it's fun to write naughty people, I would say. So, you know, I got to, or, you know, just change locations. And so I, I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, I was going to mention that too. The book does does move around a lot in space. And and I was wondering if that was a lot of research for you. Did you have to go to these places and spend time in these places? Or are you a Google Maps user that just... I'm a Google Maps user. It was very much a virtual tour. But, you know, and then also it was very research heavy. I was fortunate enough that I was using a public figure. So I had, there was a lot of material and a lot of, reporting done around Willie Picton specifically, you know. So I'm really lucky that I give many thanks to the journalists before me, particularly Stevie Cameron, who wrote On the Farm, which was a really large in-depth book about Willie Picton himself. And and there was a, there are a ton of films that I got to watch. And so, you know, I think I I did all of my research from home. 
Yeah, I was going to ask when you know how you're done. I mean, Willie Picton, you could, you might be able to wrap your arms around, but I think that's another, it's a trap for a lot of writers, trap for me. I mean, you know, I can bury myself in, in Google for, you know, 10 years. So fun. Yeah. So how do you know when you're done? Do you get a sense of like information is just repeating itself over and over? Well, no, I mean, I think that, like you said, I had a, I had, I had a beginning and I had an end when I started this book, I knew what the last line was, but I was going to have to earn that line. And so I think that that was sort of my benchmark is once I had earned that line, then I can keep going, then I can finish. Another thing that I wanted to mention was your use of Tagalog. Mm -hmm. And that was so eloquently done because, you know, there wasn't a lot there. It was used generously enough that we really kind of felt of that world, but um, it wasn't confusing. And I, I think that's also a little bit tricky for writers. And I was wondering if you had thoughts around that issue of how you approach that. Yeah, I mean, I'm really glad for all the writers before me who did all that work around um, language where I didn't have to use italics. I didn't have to have a glossary. I mean, there's so much work that was done before me to give around representation and recognition. And I am indebted to folks for allowing me to make a decision and understand why I was making that decision which is that I didn't I don't want to translate for people um and yet I do want people to understand the words from context and my editor would point out if I used a word that was like that didn't offer enough context and also Tagalog is such like a phonetic language and there's a lot of onomatopoeias in my experience and maybe that's why I use sort of onomatopoeias in my everyday language like dick wows and kitty kitty yum yum you know so like for example like the word yeah. for for fart in tagalog is you know and it's like that's what it sounds like and, so, <laughs> <laughs> and fart doesn't quite sound the same if i were gonna use one if i had a choice between the two i'd probably choose you know and so there's that i mean i also have a ton of imposter syndrome a great deal because I did not grow up in the Philippines, you know, and I, I grew up estranged from most of my Filipino family. So a lot of this was like calling aunts and people who I hadn't spoken to in many years, you know, and they would be like, well, um, do you mean the tip of the penis or the whole thing? You know, <laughs> like when I was asking them for a word and I would be like, well, I mean the whole thing, but then I'd be like, but um, you know, Maybe if it's like not a word that's like penis, but more like like cock, you know, <laughs> they were just like <laughs> and these are like estranged aunts who are like in their 70s, you know. <laughs> um, but uh they're like, uh, oh Melissa's calling again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, um, and they got a kick out of it though, too. They're like, why are you doing this again? Um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but then then they would love to like tell me their like their dirty like secrets and stuff so that was fun so there's that and I have gotten letters from people too saying you know I wish I wish you did have a glossary and I'm like you know what you know motherfuckers have 
books that are like 90% an elfish and there's no, like, right. nobody yes. has a problem with it. Yep. So, right. <laughs> true. Um, true. But, you know, I do, I, I worry about the times I, there have been a couple moments where I think I've got the language wrong and that's going to be embarrassing and hard to deal with. And then, but then also, you know, I worried about that too, about the Aswang, which is like, everybody has their own interpretation of Aswang. And I really needed permission to just remind myself like this is fiction and I get to take this wherever I take it. You know, there's not somebody who's out there that's going to be like the supreme authority on Aswang calling me up and being like, you know, you didn't get it right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Do you feel like the agent and publishing came a little easier because of the MFA and well, the PhD is coming much later, but are there paths into this? Because you got some great blurbs from former guests on the show, Melissa Phoebos and Lauren Groff. And I was just wondering if you kind of feel like an MFA is a, an easy path into this, or if there are other paths into the the big publishing world. Well, I don't think I got any of those blurbs by way of my MFA. Well, with the exception of Dana Johnson, who is now on my committee at USC as well. She was my first advisor in my MFA program, and now she's on my committee, my PhD program, which is delightful. I will say this, and hopefully, I really hope we get away from blurbs. Like, I had to get all these blurbs pre-sale even, you know, so when my book went to market, my agent had me get these blurbs to give to the publishing house, you know, and, and I, I got most of these connections by way of going to all these residencies, which cost a lot of money and you know it's not for everyone and and I just wish there were a little bit more equity around that like I got my agent because I went to the Iowa Graduate Summer Writers Workshop Um, Mm -hmm. so I lived in Iowa for two months and I had an apartment there but I'm lucky like I have a, a wife who was able to like stay home and take care of the dog while I lived in Iowa the cost of living is really cheap in Iowa, but still, you know, it's not lost on me. Like what is a single mother in, you know, some reclusive place do? I don't know. So um, I will say this though, the best advice that I got, (laughs) all we do is, this is really like the Tim, the Tin House hour, but Rob Spillman of Tin House mentioned, did this whole talk on literary citizenry. And like, I, heard him and I decided I was going to be a good literary citizen and what that looked like was that I you know I read everyone's books and I reviewed them on Goodreads which makes a big difference I think for writers and I you know I gave them stars on Goodreads if I had if I read a book that just stopped me in my tracks I would write a letter to the author just letting them know and I made friendships like that um that's actually how I met, you know, Lauren Groff. I was like, I'm your biggest fan. And she was like, I'm your biggest fan. (laughs) Um, And then, so I just, I let people know when their words moved me. And I still continue to do that to this day. Like when I was on tour, I would leave a gift card at the bookstore for the author who is behind me so that they would be able to, you know, buy books. (laughs) Mm. Um, And so I think just, uh, And this was right around when Facebook just happened. So it wasn't like super weird or creepy for you to like reach out to somebody and say, 
oh, I love your book or whatever. But I mean, reviewing books, that's always a great way to be a literary citizen. And sometimes you can end up getting paid for it. You know, I, I, if I, if I was interested in a book, I would find out what books were coming out that season and then I would request arcs and then I would write reviews of them and I would place them. And that became a big, those were the biggest parts of my education, I would say. I love that. And great advice to end on. I love that literary citizenship advice. That's wonderful. Melissa Chadburn, tell us how we, um, speaking of, you know, not being creepy to follow people and tell them we love their work. How do we, <laughs> how do we do that with you? Yeah. Um, well, I'm on the bird. I'm on the IG. Um, I'm on Facebook even. So, you know, any of those places are a good place to reach out to me. Um, and yeah, I, I, I love to speak to other readers and writers. You're my people. And is the paperback is coming out next spring? I think it's coming out April, 2023. Yeah. 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 So maybe there'll be more tour. We can follow mm -hmm. you on. Yeah. And you've got a great website so we can follow. Yes. Follow you please. There. Yeah. MelissaChadburn.com. That's right. Yes. Perfect. Melissa Chadburn. This was such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for talking to me. That was Melissa Chadburn. The book was A Tiny Upward Shove. It is out and available now, published by FSG. In addition to our Patreon page, you can also visit our websites. Barbara's is barbarademargobarrett.com. Mine is Marie Stone, two R's and Marie, mariestone.com. You can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, and Stitcher. As you likely know, if you were subscribed on Amazon or Apple, uh, we moved platforms, so hopefully you are resubscribed on the updated page. We also have a website now, which is www.writers-on-writing.com. There you can find archives of all of our past shows going all the way back to 2001, um, as well as updated shows and more information about the show up there. As always, our fantastic music and sound design was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him at travisbarrett.mykajabi.com. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day.